0: You can tell they hate us and like in the harper style yeah and and you just like okay so no, nothing's happening because they hate us and now nothing's happening but they are more friendly they say nicer things but it's not significantly different
1: this is van color <laughs> My name is Mo Amir and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a harm reduction advocate, journalist, writer, broadcaster, and musician. Over the course of his career, he has racked up many awards from the Jack Webster Foundation to the Canadian Association of Journalists to the New York International Radio Festival. You've seen his work everywhere from Vice to the Vancouver Sun to Ricochet to the Huffington Post. He holds a master's degree in political sociology from the London School of Economics. He is here via the magic of Zoom. He is the host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, where drug users cover the war on drugs as war correspondents. It is hands down one of Canada's most popular podcasts, and deservingly so. It's won a lot of awards. It has a huge reach. And like this podcast, just like this is Van Culler, it gets listened to by cabinet ministers in the BC government, which, you know, I don't know how many local podcasts can claim that. We might be the only two. You've asked for him. I'm excited to have him on. He is Garth Mullins. Garth, how are you, sir?
0: Hey, Mo. I'm good. How's it going? Good to see you. Um, Hello, cabinet ministers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hello to all the cabinet ministers listening in. I appreciate you doing that. And and Garth, I appreciate you being here. I feel like you've been doing the mainstream circuit quite regularly now. You're on CKNW quite a bit. Obviously, I'm a commentator there. I do a weekly commentary. And it's interesting because I feel like I'm up against a a large part of their audience that is uh, small C conservative, you know, the Bruce Allen fan club, which has been on my case lately online. But you come in cool as a cucumber, super accessible, common sense, rational. I actually find less tugging on the heartstrings, but more like, hey, here's the situation. And I think you're winning people over. I think you're an important voice in the city, in the country, frankly. In terms of pushing that dialogue about how we treat our most vulnerable, how we treat drug users, when we look at so many of these issues, harm reduction, safe supply, mental health and poverty, is it fair to say that these issues have kind of taken on a public relations war in a sense? Like it's not like we're sitting around figuring out the most rational policy or it's not about what actions will keep people alive today or what actions will have better outcomes for society in 10 years, because we know that. So much of it seems now to be winning the hearts and minds of a public that just needs to get over certain stigmas to generate that political will for the outcome that we all probably want, which is the good health and the happiness of our most vulnerable. So do you find it's kind of like a, a PR campaign as opposed to a policy debate?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's political. Like, I, I know that most people in the city uh, got families that someone is having a like hard time mental health wise or, you know, is using drugs or whatever. And um, I, I just think that, you know, people are probably mostly good hearted, but we we have this thing in the city as a lot of cities Where every few years, the right decides to go scapegoating marginalized people. And that sweeps a lot of people along. You know, Mm -hmm. and I've been here long enough to have seen several cycles of this. And it feels the same every time. I mean, they'll have different little characteristics and different personalities and stuff. But it's the same old thing. And I'm sure it was going on long before I showed up.
1: Now, I want to get into safe supply, particularly. And we'll get into defunding the police as well. But I want to start here. We've gone over the argument for safe supply on this podcast with both Dr. Mark Tyndall and Andrea Wu. I've even made the argument myself to other guests like Aaron Gunn. I've made the argument on the radio. The idea that, you know, you can't rehabilitate dead people. We have a moral obligation to keep people alive. It's less overdosing and more about poisoning. So let's stop the poisoning by providing a clean supply which will also cut down on things like petty crime and dangerous sex work that is committed to to pay for these drugs. So I'm just curious from your vantage point, does safe supply even exist in Vancouver beyond a few pilot programs? Or in other words, you know, what is the scope of safe supply right now in the city of Vancouver or the province of British Columbia?
0: I mean, safe supply exists primarily... In the hype of announcements from the government, you know that's that's where that's where you see it mm-hmm. most. There are a few um, pilot projects, you know, maybe across BC. Uh, there are somewhere between ninety and one hundred thousand people like me, uh, people with uh, opioid use disorder. They call it like that. We are taking some kind of opioids every day, mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot of people, right? Yeah, one hundred thousand people is a lot. Maybe two thousand at the top. Are able to access some kind of um, medication that's like an opioid prescription is a little a little above Suboxone or Methadone. So really, no. But but I mean, safe supply fundamentally is the pharmaceutical replacement of the thing people are buying on the street, the thing people are wired to. So if it's heroin, you get diacetyl morphine. If it's fentanyl, people are doing on the street. Well, the fentanyl's been available in you know in pharmacies or by prescription for a long time. Mm-hmm. There are a a sort of a regulated, known, safer pharmaceutical equivalent to everything. So it's not like a distant cousin of the thing people are doing. It's not sort of trying to nudge people down a road somewhere. It's just like straight across, replace the thing they're doing. That stops the need to grind up the money every day. And it also stops the risk of dying every day. Um, This would end the overdose crisis overnight. You know, that would be it. And uh, the fact that we don't do it is just uh, down to complete cowardice of the political leadership here in British Columbia and in Canada, in Ottawa.
1: And do you think part of the reason is because of that misnomer? I mean, we call it an overdose crisis, but like I just alluded to, it is more of a poisoning crisis, right? It's not that people are taking too much drugs. It's that they're taking drugs where they don't know what's in it, and it's it's a lethal mix.
0: Yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, for sure. It's uh, to me, it's not much different than alcohol prohibition. You know, everybody used to drink beer, uh, alcohol becomes illegal, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. And then they got to make moonshine yeah. and it's not regulated. And so people are getting sick and dying and they've got to make this stronger, tougher, smaller moonshine to smuggle it around when the, when the cops are trying to catch them and then they end prohibition and beer becomes the most popular drink again, beer and wine or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, it's like that for drugs. It started in this city in 1908 when opium became illegal. Before that, people were just smoking opium. After that, it became heroin, then injecting heroin, then eventually China white heroin, strong heroin, fentanyl, carfentanyl. It's an arms race. Mm-hmm. It keeps getting stronger and stronger.
1: And so is it fair to say, and I want to go back to that original question, is it fair to say when you, when you look at those numbers in terms of drug users and what's available in terms of safe supply, that safe supply doesn't really exist? In the province, in the city of Vancouver,
0: yeah, it's it's never been rolled out. It's never been made accessible to the people who need it. You know, so it's it's just it's just in fits and starts. It's tinkering. Um, the the political leadership of BC has never had the guts to just, you know, let doctors or whomever prescribe. Uh, what people need or or set up the facility to or, or allow people to organize themselves to do it.
1: So let's get into that, because despite even public health orders from Dr. Bonnie Henry to prescribe safe supply, we found out in January that safe supply wasn't being prescribed by registered nurses or registered psychiatric nurses. Karen Ward, of course, you know, she's been yelling about this from the rooftops, but it was still astonishing to learn that 4 months after dr bonnie henry made a public health order to open up safe supply it just didn't happen why wasn't her public health order carried out
0: this is uh this is like w- when a government really wants to do something it organizes itself to do it like we've seen governments do pretty dramatic things you know like sh- shut down businesses and you know stop the economy mm-hmm. for uh covid-19 like Like Governments can still make big moves when they want to, but when they don't want to, they allow the diffusion of responsibility to let the gears grind to a halt. So if you ask who's in charge of the overdose crisis, who's in charge of fixing this in Canada, the answer is a list of like a dozen different organizations and entities. It's Health Canada, Ministry of Health of British Columbia, Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, College of Physicians and Surgeons, College of Pharmacists, local health authorities. There's more. And they all can point at each other as getting in the way or slowing things down. But of course, governments know how this works. Governments have been at this for a long time. So they're happy to let the status quo prevail while the diffusion of responsibility grinds us through the mud.
1: And I understand that that point of view, and it's certainly cynical, and I appreciate it. I'm just wondering then why even make the public health order in the first place?
2: Well,
0: I, I'm I'm sure that Bonnie Henry uh, doesn't, you know. I'm ascribing this to the political leadership of of the province. You know, mm. the NDP cabinet, um, and the uh, Bonnie Henry's order doesn't carry the same weight, I guess, as the uh, the premier deciding that something shall be so. You know, I think Bonnie Henry's orders are often taken as polite recommendations. Certainly on overdose matters,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, her her orders are often just ignored, you know, like two years ago, she gave a path to uh, decriminalization in BC Mm and set out a blueprint. And that was just uh, in one news cycle, just thrown out by um, the minister uh, Farnworth. So, you know, uh, um, I, I don't think I'm being cynical. I think this is actually how governments work. When something goes to the top of their priority list, they can really push on it. They can't push on everything at once. Overdose deaths aren't a priority. Um, it's evident from their movement on it, and that means that the people who are dying are considered by them maybe the wrong people, mm-hmm. or not um, not vote vote netting deaths. <laughs> no, I don't know.
1: So is this akin to a situation where, say, say you have a large corporation and you have the head of one of its uh, departments or, or or substructures saying, "Hey, we need to do this." And we should do this to make, uh, you know, substantial change within our organization. And the executives within the organization say, yep, we're going to do it. But then those executives are, are not following through. They're not actually, uh, you know, going to everyone else and making sure that the next steps are put in place.
0: My suspicion is that you have the most junior executive on this imagined board of directors of this corporation. Mm-hmm who is the uh, minister of mental health and addictions it is a tiny ministry yeah. with a junior minister always and this junior minister goes cap in hand to a cabinet meeting with some recommendations that sort of bubbled up through the system that she sits on top of you know so ultimately maybe from some um health informed and evidence informed people um she sort of gets her 3 minutes at the cabinet table makes some suggestions and cabinet's like no You know, um, we've we've kind of heard directly from the premier his ideas about um, addiction and the overdose crisis. He, He sort of talked about it before the election last summer, and he doesn't seem plugged in or well informed about this. We got a minister of health that almost never talks about it, It goes out of his way, not to mention it. So it's left that one of the biggest health issues in the province is left to the most junior person in this imaginary board of directors. And I think they just don't listen. You know, I I know that cabinet meetings are secret and we won't know what goes on in there. Mm -hmm. But from the bits and pieces I can put together, I, I imagine it goes something like that.
1: So I guess from I guess I want your opinion then. Why not? Because we've seen this government in opposition. When the BC Liberals were in power, and they were hammering the BC Liberals every day on this, and they were, you know, they they really placed blame of the crisis on the government at the time, and now there doesn't seem to be a lot of headway or a lot of movement on this from them when they're in power. So why? What what is the resistance here?
0: Well, they told me um, last year. Oh, you don't understand what it's like to be a minority government. You know, if we lose any votes, we could lose power and then it would be worse. Then it would be back to the BC Liberals. So I didn't really believe that. I wasn't entirely convinced, but sure, that's, that's a narrative.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but now that they have a large majority, now that, um, you know, people campaigned, the BC Liberals, some BC Liberal um, candidates campaigned in the last election against harm reduction, basically. Yeah. And lost for it. You know, Sam Sullivan campaigned explicitly against one uh, safe injection site on Seymour. Um, There were others. And so the the electorate has kind of spoken on this and they still aren't doing anything. So it's something more. It's the fact that, um, you know, here in B.C., uh, what's called the liberals are actually conservative. What's called the New Democrats are actually liberal. And we just don't have uh, like a proper left party, a proper party that wants to do the the real social democratic work of building out health infrastructure, of really changing things. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I just think it's it's uh, it's not on their list of priorities because that is not who they are.
1: Hmm. As an aside, I heard that you endorse Sam Sullivan. Where <laughs> <laughs> didn't you yeah, appear that's... in one of his campaign videos, Garth?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, funny story that, yeah, he lifted a comment off of me uh, out of context and made it look like I was uh, supporting his you know, sort of from the right perspective. And I just said, no, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that caused a lot of people in the city to go, oh, what what is he running on anyway? Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, we could see he was running against a safe injection site and kind of a kind of a nasty little campaign and cozying up to some nasty uh, elements and uh, people said, no, thanks. See you later, Sam. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, uh, people heard what he had to say and, and dismissed them.
1: And didn't he say that if he, if he lost, he would then work with those or work for those nasty elements. I think he said he would, you know, he might go to for Vancouver or, or do something with them if he lost something like that.
0: I don't know. Yeah, yeah I don't know what he's doing now.
1: Anyways, a, a speculation. I, I shouldn't say that as fact, but anyways, I, so I just want to get, again, I and I know this might seem repetitive, I just want to get clarity. You know, we, I just referenced that Global News article by Srishti Gangdev in January talking about how four months after public health orders, still no safe supply being prescribed. Is that still the same situation today in late March? Is safe supply still not being widely prescribed?
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and there's there's um, friction in the system in all kinds of places, like a lot of doctors don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, 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 the colleges that, that sort of do the CYA for the doctors are not enthusiastic. The ministry that's in charge kind of doesn't have an implementation plan. Um it's a bit of a mess all over. But really, I mean, we're coming at this from a lot of different angles. Like, why isn't the government doing this? Why isn't this happening? And it's just, it's like, what is, what is, what is my, what is the theory of history? Like, how do things actually change? And my view is they never change because people at the top suddenly read the right report or suddenly have the right evidence or data put in front of them or suddenly have a change of heart because enough pictures of dead children have been sent to them. That's not how history changes it's when people who are affected by um, government policies get organized enough that they can raise the political costs to the government of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that means that the people really who have to do this are me and people at the Vancouver area network of drug users and our allies. And it's always been this way that we have to get organized enough and twist the government's arms. So they really don't have any other moves. And I mean, that's how we got, um, needle distribution in the 90s here Mm -hmm. that's how we got safe injection sites here they were all done through civil disobedience first needle distribution and safe injection in the city were illegal at first Mm -hmm. until we embarrassed the governments into allowing it and eventually providing funding for it it's going to be the same you know and it's not just for drug users this is just how like everything in history every group of people that have tried to get Um, a better deal in the world or uh, rights acknowledged or whatever. Civil rights, every movement, you know, like working people, organizing into unions, it always goes this way. I don't think we're special or different or are going to get any um, front of the line or anything like that. We just have to do the hard work of organizing.
1: As a government, I just don't know how they aren't, and I'm talking about both provincially and federally, how government isn't already embarrassed or ashamed by the number of people that have died from this. How do you, I mean, how do you shame them even more? I mean, is, is shouldn't that be, I don't like using the word embarrassing, but, it, you know, it's shameful, right? Like, how, how do you make it even more shameful? Just more deaths? Like, I, uh, I don't get it. No, I think I think you have to kind of call
0: their bluff. You know, so back in the day when Anne Livingston and people who founded the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users back in the 90s, um, when they opened underground safe injection sites during the last overdose crisis,
2: mm-hmm.
0: they, they went public about it. You know, they didn't make it completely secret and they kind of said, OK, police come and arrest us. Let's run this through the court system you know, let's find out, let's find out really if it's, if it's so illegal to save lives.
2: Hmm.
0: And, um, of course the cops are smart around here. They didn't fall for that. Um, but it might have to be the same kind of thing. You know, we might have to see people obtaining, uh, pharmaceutical grade diacetylmorphine and distributing it to groups of, uh, groups of drug users. Um, in the same sort of way. And I don't know whether that's a doctor or how that exactly works. People, people are definitely discussing that, hmm. but it might have to be the same thing. And then call on the government or whoever to, um, arrest the people who are doing it, arrest the doctor, arrest somebody. And then we'll, we'll shame them for that. You know, maybe that's how it works. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know, but certainly there's no, and people, people always expect, oh, you know, if we, if we go over 1,500 deaths or we go over 150 a month or something, surely that's gotta be the threshold, but I think it never is. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't think there's enough of us that can die that just that number alone changes anything in Victoria or Ottawa. I think it's what we do when we're alive. I think that's what's going to change.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it frustrating for you when you hear from mainstream commentators that say, ah, safe supply or harm reduction has failed, or we need more than just safe supply, when it doesn't even seem like safe supply, and and we've clearly demonstrated that safe supply has not been made accessible to drug users. So it's like we're giving something a failing grade, but it hasn't even been put to the test.
0: Yeah, it's really true. I mean, harm reduction is the same. There's a lot of harm reduction services available in twelve square blocks of this city, but it's pretty sparse mm-hmm. everywhere else. And the coroner statistics show that people die everywhere else. The coroner statistics show that half the people who die went to work that morning. You know, and half of those worked right. in the trades. So it's like the the idea of who needs harm reduction and who's a drug user in in the public imagination of that of that pundit or whoever it's it's wrong you know it's it's so it's it's like uh the idea that um drug users and people who overdose of this niche part of the population that live in one little particular place and and have one kind of walk of life it's completely incorrect i mean as drug users we are in your workplaces and your communities and your churches and your families Mm -hmm. you know and and until and unless people realize that um this political myth would, will continue that, oh, there's just this 12 square blocks of people who are affected by this and we don't, we don't really have to think about it. And I think the coroner has been trying to make that clear to everybody for five years, you know, that, um, they find our bodies everywhere mm-hmm. and mostly in houses inside alone and having gone to work that day. Right.
1: So how is it that so many commentators with a straight face come onto media and say the safe supply has failed or harm reduction has failed. Like, I mean, it's, it's a lie. Right. And, but no one's calling that out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like that, uh, Simpsons episode where Ned Flanders says, Oh man, we tried nothing. And we're all out of ideas. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> let's try it first. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, there are though, um, some, uh, numbers from the corner, I think where they took all the overdoses that were reversed in all the safe injection facilities and said, you know, we would have had two and a half times as many people die that year, mm-hmm. if not for those facilities. So the idea that harm reduction doesn't work um, is wrong, right? Harm reduction is like first aid. It's mm-hmm. trying to, it's trying to like do a little wound care. It's not surgery. It's not the hospital. It's not the whole, or the whole wellness continuum. It is the very first thing very first stop. Right. So like when we break open a little glass ampule of Narcan of naloxone and draw it up and hit somebody that snapping sound to me, that's kind of like an emission of failure. Hmm. This is the last intervention you can make in the last few heartbeats of somebody's life. Yeah. When we know what to do way upstream of all of this stuff. And we've known like around Van Vandu, we've known for 25 years since the last time this happened. So, uh, like, to say it's failed, we haven't even got a chance to try the program that we've been proposing.
1: So then why such a resistance to things like, I mean, putting safe supply aside just for a second, why even resistance to, like, safe injection sites? Like, I've never understood this because, you know, I could understand maybe people saying not enough people are availing safe injection sites. I can understand people saying there are not enough safe injection sites. But I never understood the illogical jump from saying, oh, we have a record number of opioid poisoning deaths, ergo safe injection sites, harm reduction is failing when it's like, you know, maybe those deaths wouldn't happen if there were, if, if those people were in safe injection sites, if there was more harm reduction available to the drug user and availed by the drug user.
0: I mean, I've heard this argument all my life. And uh, like I started, I started using drugs a long time ago, like when I was a, a teenager, you know, and, and the idea was, if we were given um, new syringes, that would just encourage us to use drugs more. So withhold those syringes, make them hard to get, and maybe we'll learn our lesson mm. and we'll just go home. But what happened was we shared, Yeah. you know, and Um, you know, maybe if the threat of death was around and people couldn't just go to a safe injection site, maybe they would learn their lesson and just go home. Right. So there's people out there and, and and they tweet at me all the time. Like, what about personal responsibility? Why don't you just haul yourself up by your own bootstraps? Well, there's a couple things about that. First of all, quitting drugs is really, really hard if you're wired. And there's a whole century of proof on this, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is really difficult. I, I am on methadone right now, which is basically just a substitute. It's a nicotine patch for heroin Mm -hmm. and I'll probably be on it forever. Like I can't, I can't quit. I can't go cold Turkey. I've really tried. I've gone to lots and lots, like a hundred probably in my life, maybe more 12 step meetings. Just, it does not work for me. It doesn't work for a lot of people. And there's reasons, um, you know, but there's, there's a lot of, Um, larger structural forces that kind of swing through people's lives like wrecking balls and just leave a lot of rubble. And uh, you know, we're, we're self-medicating a lot of the time. Yeah. There's more and more information on that all the time. So people think, Oh, what about personal responsibility? Well, we live in a world where it's, you don't just have perfect personal agency where you're not an atom that can choose whatever direction you want to go. It's a constant conversation between these structures these bigger forces in society and our own little personal agency. And the lower down you are in the big old pyramid of society, the less agency you have and the more those structures are weighing on you. So the people who say that they're just, they're just kind of taking like lukewarm takes out of Thatcher and Reagan or something (laughs) and trying to make that go. I think it's a minority opinion right now, but it's a loud one.
1: And so let's get into this idea of like personal responsibility, because one thing I'm hearing a lot, is this idea of treatment beds. And I'm not against treatment beds. I think they're a great idea. We know that involuntary treatment doesn't have a high success rate. We've known this for years. But again, we have a lot of right-leaning commentators, politicians, continue to push this narrative that treatment beds are not open. And as a result, that's why we see record-high poisoning deaths. I'm just curious if a drug user decides to get clean or a street drug user decides to get clean, are there treatment beds available?
0: I mean, there are some, and there is quite a process to get there, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like, so first of all, you have to go to detox, you know, and um, after that you go to a, you know, a recovery house or something like that. And these things can have long waiting lists. You can be required to phone to see if you have a place every day for months and months and months. And if you miss a day of phoning in, you uh, go back to the beginning of the list. Mm -hmm. And when you get to these recovery homes, nothing about what treatment happens there is regulated. So Mm -hmm. you might get breathology which is a new one I heard of to me, learning how to breathe. Maybe that's your treatment. And I mean, it's great. Like, I I love to calm yourself down by breathing properly, but Mm -hmm. it sure doesn't treat dope sickness. Yeah. Um, You might get art therapy or music therapy or just listening to music or whatever. None of that stuff is regulated. Mostly what they do is they have you go down the street and go into a church basement where somebody's running a 12-step group. Hmm. So the government doesn't say, this is what you have to do. You have to do something that's evidence-based. You have to give people the option to use methadone or suboxone or something, which are, you know, for a long time been considered the gold standard in, in treatment. A lot of these places will say, no, 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 we don't believe that. That's just trading a drug for a drug. So we're not all about that here. Hmm. So yeah, if you, if you want to get clean, as you said, that means nothing, no, no drugs, nothing. So, um, this is, this is the process you're supposed to go. It's, it's unregulated, but also it's just like what happens in these beds is so uncertain. So if you, um, you know, if you go there and then you fall off the wagon, you do use, they'll kick you out. You know, they'll evict you. They'll evict you for, for lots of different reasons, but Mm -hmm. it's one of the only diseases I can think of, or they, they call it a disease where if you have a, a relapse and they, they tell me at 12 step, it's a chronic relapsing condition. You will relapse. Keep coming back. So if this predictable thing happens to you, that they'll say, oh, you failed. Get out. Um, That's very weird. Yeah. So this idea that there's just there's just beds ready. It's bullshit. And it's also this lovely dream of the right. It's like, look at these out of control ruffians in the streets. I wish they were tucked away in a bed somewhere. Hmm. You know, the idea of there's a bed, you you could just be horizontal and have a pillow that will solve. I mean, I do believe everybody should have a bed, but uh, just the idea of treatment beds is it is lives large in the imagination like a silver bullet. And, you know, like I just I've been through enough 12 step programs i have so many friends like a good friend of mine is just in this right now um on crackdown we follow tannis rose all the way through her great efforts to get clean and she's that's what she still wants more than anything um through all the re- these recovery houses in vancouver and vancouver island um i suggest people go listen to it it's uh, it's quite an arduous journey
1: And so let's get into that a little bit, because you bring up an interesting point. There seems to be a lot of, again, politicians and commentators recognizing that, yes, there is drug addiction, recognizing that there are mental health issues, recognizing even that there is trauma. But then they seem to encourage mass institutionalization. So explain it to me. Why doesn't that work? Because we hear that in the news media, in the public discourse all the time. Round up the drug users send them to an institution, they can come back into quote-unquote regular society once they're clean, even knowing that the success rate for involuntary treatment is very low. What is wrong with that approach?
0: This is, in Vancouver, this is the dream and the myth of Riverview. Yeah. You know, Riverview was, they, they called it an asylum. It's a kind of creepy old Victor was a big creepy old Victorian kind of complex open in the in the early part of the 20th century and you know eventually called the hospital for the mind and all this um, and then in in the sort of 80s 70s and 80s there was a movement sweeping the world uh, led by people who were patients in these places saying these are not good places for us mm-hmm. um, not good places for us for as human beings even to treat our, our mental health issues like we do not want to be in these. And so people were governments were starting to shut these places down in, in BC. We did the same thing. Our government was also loving the idea of saving the money. And it was just like, everyone can be taken care of out in the community. But then of course, you know, this is the eighties and nineties. There's just like budget cuts after budget cuts. It's sweeping the world, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, Mulroney, cut back. Cut back. Paul Martin, biggest cuts to the social safety net in, mm-hmm. um, Canadian history put by Lloyd Axworthy who was the minister at the time. And so of course the 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 um mental health care never never appeared. And it's never been part of um the reg- the the much vaunted Canadian healthcare system, right? So we have this healthcare system it's it'll take care of you but not your eyes, your teeth or your brain. Right? right? So yeah. it's like it excludes these <laughs> there's these carve outs. Uh you know and 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 so the dream of everybody or or these commentators i should say these right wing commentators is can't we lock everybody back in there can't we shove people back and this is the this is the classic conservative reaction it's like there was this golden era where people knew their place where certain people were locked away where certain other people didn't have rights can't we get back there can't we get back to that orderly world well the good old days were mostly bad mm-hmm. mostly bad for us anyway so Like, I I don't dream of that, but that myth of Riverview, the ghosts of Riverview haunt every discussion in one way or another about um, mental health and drug use.
1: Can you just explain it to the listener why it's bad, though? Why warehousing people in these institutions doesn't work or, or, or is morally bad? Sure. Let's, let's think about that. Um, Do you want to be warehoused anywhere?
0: Like does nobody wants to go to jail, right? (laughs) Nobody, nobody wants to be forced to do anything. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, like I I try to think of an example. What's something that I would want to be forced to do, you know uh, even good things. Like if someone forced me to eat pizza, I probably wouldn't want to do it. (laughs) So like drug users are no different than anybody else. If you force me to do something, it's going to work way less, way less well you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? If I'm compelled to enter a drug treatment program, I'm not ready to, I'm not like my life is still full of things. I'm still self-medicating or whatever. Um, It's not going to work. And let me tell you about the problems that I've had in my life are not because of drugs. The problems I've had are because drugs were illegal. Drugs were too expensive. Drugs were contaminated. Drugs had cops chasing me around. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I had a, a good white collar job going, and a stable heroin dealer. I would just get my hit in the morning and I'd go to work and that's fine. Nobody knew. And that went on for years. You know, the most dangerous things about drugs is that they're illegal. That's, that's the part that's really killer. So if we stop trying to aim our solutions at the wrong thing, like you hear it in the way people describe the words, they say an addiction crisis or an opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. because in their mind, the crisis is my God, people are using drugs to me. I call it an overdose crisis, because to me, the crisis is my friends and the people I care about are dying. It is a dying crisis, not a what molecule is floating in your bloodstream crisis. So once we reckon that, then we can understand where the solutions are aimed. Is it controlling what's in people's bloodstream, whether it's a opioid molecule or not, or what's in people's lungs as in air, as in they're still alive?
1: (laughs) Mm hmm. And sort of wrapping up this discussion around safe supply, which again, I think people also equate the two as the same thing. They use interchangeable terms, even though safe supply is a component of harm reduction. What needs to be done today to get safe supply in the hands of drug users, including vulnerable drug users? Because again, we've had the public health orders. You seem to have a lot more public buy-in for safe supply but it's just not being done. So what has to be done and, and who has to do it?
0: I mean, why can't doctors prescribe heroin? Right? People, doctors have done this. Like I used to live in the UK and the UK had a heroin prescription program going back decades. People would go to the pharmacy and pick up their diacetylmorphine. It was okay. And when, at the height of that program, they had almost no um, illicit drug users. Like they're mm-hmm. The problem was just entirely contained. And, and the fact that they uh, sort of drove that program into the ground, you know, uh, corresponding to an explosion of um, illicit drugs in the UK or illicit heroin in the UK. But um, p- people have done this before. People have done this before a lot. Like, are we so gutless in British Columbia that we can't do it? Well, certainly the Minister of Health is not interested in putting diacetylmorphine on the formulary, you know, on the list of acceptable medications that the government The government keeps. Mm -hmm. And and so if we can't do simple things like that,
1: um, yeah, we're not going to get there. Is it mostly the province or is it the feds or is it the city? Where do you see the main roadblocks here in terms of action of getting safe supply into the hands of drug users? Everybody can do
0: something about the overdose crisis at their level. So anytime you hear a government saying that it's another government's responsibility, be suspicious, like (laughs) lean in close, because this is a classic Canadian pastime is saying, oh, it's the other level of government. Right. The Constitution Act, Section 91 and 92, divide up the powers between the feds and the province. But that is not a suicide pact. And it's yeah. just a way to divide things It's supposed to be cooperative and complementary. It's not supposed to be this way to, uh, you know, Buffalo, the the voter into not understanding what's going on. Um, but it's, it's on all files on so many files. It's this lovely excuse. And, you know, it's also a historical, like back in the early two thousands, we had the Vancouver agreement in which the feds, the province, and the city all work together to use their little pieces of jurisdiction to address the problem. This is kind of where Insight came out of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Harper and his people kind of walked away from that. But, you know, the arrangements between governments have worked before. There's yeah. no reason why we can't do it again. Except for cowardice and lack of priority.
1: What can the city of Vancouver do specifically in terms of making safe supply more accessible in terms of increasing harm reduction within their own jurisdiction? I tell you, um, you know, they
0: don't have as much control over what kind of drugs can be prescribed as other mm-hmm. levels of government. But the city of Vancouver are the people who oversee the police budget and ostensibly for whom the police work. And so having the police stop uh, being active in the drug war would be a major benefit. right? So right now, there's probably a police car parked outside of one of the harm reduction facilities on the zero block or the hundred block or the 300 block of east hastings Mm -hmm. i'm sure there always are and this has the effect of dissuading people from going to use them Mm. you know in the last three years police have stopped and seized people's drugs very very small quantities of drugs about fifteen thousand times no charges or anything like that on these just take them away sometimes they even take naloxone off people they're really? to stop doing that. Just like wow. they have to stand down and Vancouver needs to be throwing all of the levers it can to stand people down. Vancouver has such a pro cop. Trust the cops. Trust every cop. They're all nice guys kind of philosophy. We have to get over that. I'm sure there are lots of nice guys. But the police are an institution that has benefited greatly from the drug war. It's had a massively expanded budget. So those people have to be no longer part of the discussion about drugs. They are in a conflict of interest about it. And they have been proven untrustworthy at every turn throughout the last 20 years on this. So the city could take a brave stand and remove police from this equation in every way possible. I think they're making some good moves. There's been some... uh, the criminalization motions that have gone through, Mm -hmm. there has been a a freezing of the police budget. That's more to do with pandemic expenses. But if you look at that, the police are outraged about it and the police board is going to the province to overrule it. So in some ways (laughs) the city might not really have democratic control over the cops at all. I guess we'll see, but I mean the police are still police courts and jails are still where the vast majority of money goes on this stuff. And until that changes, we're going to keep seeing the same kind of results.
1: And so I'm glad you took us in this direction because this is where I want to go next. You've obviously talked a lot about defunding the police. You're on the front lines in the downtown east side. Just zooming out a little bit, if you were to sum it up, what is the fundamental problem with policing?
0: I mean, I, I'm 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 at home right now. I'm not on the front lines of anything, <laughs> so, but i just in my decades as a drug user, I've had lots of experience with the police. Um, for the overdose crisis, the problem with police is um, they make us illegal. So the the laws that the police enforce, which they have the discretion on how and when they enforce, mm-hmm. they they put us outside of society. So we are removed from society. I can't call the cops if something bad happens to me or something's breaking into my house. Cause I don't know what they're going to do. I don't mm. know if they're going to arrest me or arrest the person or shoot me or shoot someone else. I don't know what's going to happen. I've just seen too much shit to have the confidence to do that. And I'm like lots and lots and lots of people in the city, right? So the police are not for us. Do not keep us safe. In fact, make things more dangerous. Like if you're, if you're a drug user or you're a sex worker, you're poor or homeless, The police are out there moving you along. You are not considered part of the people they protect. Mm -hmm. You know, they formed a special unit late last year in the middle of a pandemic. They formed a special unit to go and harass people who are uh, in the parks, using drugs in a park or, or sleeping in a doorway. Like that's that really shows what they're thinking about. So, yeah, I mean, so police aren't good for us, but police aren't good for anybody else in the way that they think they are either. Everybody has a TV cop show of ideas of what the cop does. You know, they'll, they'll think of the, the yarn board in the, in the squad room. You know, it's like connecting a whole bunch of uh, pieces of evidence with pieces of yarn to the serial killer. And they've figured it out and they just spent all the sure. extra nights and they worked really hard and they caught the guy. Well, not here. I mean, I remember in the nineties, the rumors, I heard them on the street. Don't go to the Coquitlam pig farm. Don't go with this guy with his dirty white pickup truck.
2: Hmm.
0: You know, and I, I didn't, I didn't know what to think about that. Cause the street talks, there's always lots of rumors. You never know what's true, but people were disappearing. Women were disappearing and the cops were doing nothing about it. And when, one one woman got away in um, 1997, he he stabbed her. She got away. He, he She stabbed him. They both wound up in the same hospital and he wasn't arrested. Robert Pickton was not arrested, wow. even though there was blood on his clothes because <laughs> she was a drug user. Uh, sorry, he was not charged, I should say. Charged, they didn't proceed with charges because she was not considered a credible witness because um, wow. she was a drug user. And so even the idea that the police are going to catch the serial killers, that's the, that's the big card. Like who's going to protect you from these people.
2: Mm -hmm. It hasn't
0: been them. Hasn't been for us. And then you look at our murder solve rate in this city with relatively few murders. It's quite low, Mm -hmm. you know? So the idea that police equals safety one safety for whom two does it really? And also We've organized societies around the world and throughout history in a lot of different ways. Um, And I think we can keep each other safe without having ballooning, ballooning police budgets. I think there's ways that we can do that.
1: Yeah. And going back to that Picton era, uh, I mean, I was in grade school, so I I don't have uh, a particular memory of it. But I've been told that around that time, despite there being a lot of warning signs, the narrative was that it was central American gangs that were behind the, the missing women.
0: I remember, um, you know, relatives calling the police and being told, Oh, she's probably just off partying somewhere. Yeah. You know? And, and they'd say, no, no, no. She visits her daughter every Tuesday, or she always calls on Sundays or the people who are her neighbors are like, Oh, she, you know, she never, never would not feed her cat. You know, We, I knew somebody who, who wound up on the farm Hmm. and, and when the farm became Canada's largest crime scene and they were sifting for the DNA of dozens of people, there were cops outside of that farm laughing and joking about poor sex workers.
2: Hmm.
0: And that was a little scandal in the media back then, but it's like, you'll never convince me that these are the right people for it not because they're bad people as individuals, because they're institutionally set up for something else. Cops were set up in Canada to clear the prairies of Indigenous Mm -hmm. people, uh, to make way for railroads, to break strikes. Uh, They were not set up for this. They're not set up to be healthcare workers or anything like that. So they just, we we shouldn't be seeing that.
1: And you've kind of touched on this already, but it seems to be a a matter of class as well, right? Like, it's not like vpd are going around busting up the the coke parties in in yaletown right when they're targeting drug users it is a very specific type of user
0: yeah i think you know i think that it's it's the the tendency is like you find someone visible and and that's where you go you know uh mm-hmm. their uh i their operations to get up the food chain or have not been traditionally very successful. I, I don't know what they do to Coke parties in, in Yaletown. I, I know that they have an orientation towards, uh, you know, the street as opposed to white collar crime,
2: mm-hmm. you know?
0: Uh, so uh, I, in fact, I think police units have been disbanded in BC that we're looking into uh, white collar crime and money laundering <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's like, where is the harm being caused in society? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and this is this is a fundamental role of police in the modern era throughout, you know, since Peel is that they're also here to protect property. Yeah, you know, and that's that's a that's a big part of the job, and that is often different than protecting the rights of people. You know, depending on who owns the property and how that property becomes concentrated into the hands of a very small group of people in this city, and then when one of them. Peter wall donates to the same police a million dollars and says, Oh, by the way, here's a map. Please police these areas where I have buildings. Yeah. You know, it's just, we're, we are outside of, um, of a construct that is democratically controlled or safe for, at least for most people I know.
1: I, you know, that Peter wall thing was unbelievable because it's sort of, spoke to some of our most cynical, deepest fears about how policing works. But what I found incredible was that there was a whole horde of people defending Peter Wall. What a great guy. This is someone that we should, you know, this guy's a hero. He's he's helping our communities. <laughs> <laughs> with complete disregard of, of what that means in terms of some rich guy drawing out a map and saying, okay, I'll give you X amount of dollars, but you need to protect or you quote unquote protect these properties that I own. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on like, do you want to live in a democracy or is like feudalism okay with you? Where mm. plutocrats have their own private police forces? I mean, that's the logic of what we're talking about. Right? Yeah. These uh, donations uh, tend to fund things that the city doesn't want to fund. And I don't mean city bureaucrats. I mean, we elect people to city council. They make decisions about money. And if they don't want to buy, uh, you know, whatever, like a mobile um, militarized command unit or whatever Mm -hmm. for the police, then they go get it from private donors. Yeah. So, uh, like, it's just it's it's not just money. It's circumventing um, how how we choose to run the police you know like governments speak with dollars governments uh, allow for things to happen or not happen by how much they spend and it's so it's actually not just money it's a major uh way of democratically controlling the police we've we've long suggested actually that money that police spend on chasing around drug users should be cut it just it should be no longer possible to spend public money just harassing drug users and Bonnie Henry has also said that a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just the the Peter Walls want to circumvent that. In fact, one of the things he said with that with that money is like that he doesn't like safe injection sites. So he wants to see police, you know, going another direction on that
1: stuff. Right now, most people seem to agree that perhaps mental health professionals or other social service professionals are better suited for certain police calls, and I think that's where you do get a lot of buy-in with regard to defund the police. But some of these calls are dangerous and may involve potential self-harm or harm to others. Shouldn't a police officer always be there? You know, there's,
0: well, we'd have to take the word of police of how many of these calls are, are dangerous.
2: Mm.
0: I have seen um, police roll up on a guy who's just lying on the sidewalk. He's kind of yelling and having a bad time, but they, they jump out and they just wind the guy right up, escalated the whole situation until he's in cuffs. And he's just really mad. And It's just like, this didn't need to happen, but I'm, I'm sure they were writing that up as dangerous, but right. when they came, the guy was lying down. I mean, that's anecdotal, but I don't know how many of the police calls are truly dangerous and how many they make dangerous. Mm. Um, I'm sure that policing can be dangerous, though, you know, and there are um, a lot of people who work in mental health care who who deal with people who don't don't have to call the police all the time. You right. know, uh, so there are ways to deescalate people, even people who are being aggressive that don't involve rolling up with, uh, you know, sirens and lights blaring and jumping out with a badge and gun and a uniform and just increasing the tension in that situation. Like I have done this myself. Um, I was at a party a long time ago where a guy. Kind of lost the run of himself and was trying to hurt people with an axe. Like he was trying to chop people with yeah. an axe. And I de-escalated the guy. I was just like, "Hey, hey, hey! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Do you want to just um, have a smoke and let's just chill out a second, like that?" And I did take the axe off him and I did give him a cigarette and then I, I did hide the axe in a way that it's probably still on the roof of that house. You know? But <laughs> uh, <clears throat> like, I think that's what you got to do. Like, you got to give give people who are in the community and have the skills to de-escalate. Got to give those people standing Mm. and even funding to do some of this work so that we don't roll up to someone and say, well, they might harm themselves, so we're going to shoot them. You know, uh, that is too often how these things end uh, with police doing mental health work.
1: Now, you advocate for police to change behavior and protocol. You were a big voice in getting officers to carry naloxone. So how much of what you're advocating for in terms of defunding the police is about changing police behavior and protocol versus replacing police and law enforcement altogether?
0: Well, I, I mean, I've been at this a long time, so I've been to inquests, inquiries, commissions, hearings, court cases, all these different things in this city where... People have tried to reform the police or tried to kind of pull them back from their most extreme activity and they don't work. You know, uh, first of all, there's a real tall blue wall and that's very real. Um, police want to slow walk the process or not hand over the documents or not produce witnesses or whatever, um, police even get in trouble for kind of covering stuff up. You know, you mm-hmm. think about the Jikansky, uh killing of uh, Polish immigrant, Robert Jakanski at the airport back like uh, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a-, a lot of these things produce recommendations, which the police are f- free to ignore or interpret and implement as they want. And so the desired changes um, it's very hard for them to stick. So I, like, it, certainly, I I don't want to change how the police um, behave towards uh, sex workers or drug users or c- criminalize poor people or whatever. I just want them to stop, like, just stand down, go home, call in sick, like you have no role here anymore.
2: Hmm.
0: And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of other areas of society where we could start rolling back policing. Like, we do not need police in healthcare. You don't need police sitting in emergency rooms all the time uh you don't need um police in schools i'm not just talking about the society we have now minus cops or or with a 50 percent rollback in the police budget i'm saying th- that budget has grown a lot since the 2000s it's all yeah. it's doubled since the 2000s and that money every year could be going to the kinds of community programs that do me a real safety. I mean, safety isn't hard to figure out. Safety means housing. Safety means daycare. Safety means all of these parts of what is called the safety net, the social mm-hmm. safety net that have been so cut and so destroyed over the last years. Like if people think things have gotten worse, I, I you know, like out there in the world and on the streets, you just think about how much of our, um, how much of our social spending has been taken away or hasn't kept up and you you have half of the answer right there and so if we just start to reinvest start to heal communities start to patch the ragged holes that are punched by austerity and start to find like actual caring instead of cops mm-hmm. um, i think you start to make a much better community and you know that's <laughs> the reducing the police budget by 50% is not something the councils ever likely to do soon But the demand doesn't take us back to the 19th century, just takes us back 15 years. Right. You know, before the Olympics, before the police bought acoustic weapons to use on protesters, bought a tank to run up on people, uh, hardened their cop cars with those like cow pusher things on the front, like just before all the militarization of the cops was happening.
1: Mm -hmm. The resistance to rethinking law enforcement is quite interesting. You were on a panel on the Mike Smith show on CKNW recently and the other panelist actually suggested that defunding the police has failed even though it's a fairly new movement and hasn't really been enacted. I guess this touches on, you know, what we were talking about at the top of the show in terms of a PR campaign. What are the biggest lies or the biggest false narratives that you're trying to overcome when you're talking about defunding the police rethinking policing
0: well i've i've worked in the union movement for a bunch of years in my life and you know we fight for better wages for the workers we don't stand apart from that and say, oh, we really have no dog in this fight, uh, you know, um, but decreasing wages would fail. You know, like <laughs> I, don't, I don't pretend that I don't have a side. So yeah. if you ask a cop, hey, what about reducing the police budget? Of course, the cop is going to say, no, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Yeah, Of course they are. They're the wrong person to ask about that. Right. Like as a union, as a shop steward, I am fighting for my members. I'm fighting for the members of the union local. That's it. But that cop is is speaking on behalf of police who are, you know, wanting to continue doing what they do and, uh, you know, want bigger budgets and all that want better toys. And so, like talking to the police about police budgets is is loopy. And when they don't like the answer, they're going to go crying to the provincial government to some unelected person called the director of police services who can potentially overrule whatever the city council says. And this director of police services is himself a former uh, RCMP. (laughs) So it's a closed loop. It is the circle of life, Simba. It is cops all the way down.
1: Right. I guess I just mean culturally, like what are the big lies or narratives that you have to overcome in terms of trying to get people at the table to talk about defunding the police?
0: Oh, culturally, it's really difficult, right? Because we are all drenched with a fire hose of TV cop shows and copaganda and cops in schools and just cops. Policing has infested itself into the culture so deeply that it's just, it's like kittens, Mm. you know, it's just like, rainbows like no one would no one would not like that who are you like that's loopy why could you think that way it's it's we we all imagine the tv cop show outcomes Mm -hmm. and the tv cop shows have also portrayed who the criminals are right right? so um our imagination of the world is changed by those tv shows too now i i want people to feel safe and I, drug users, fundamentally, my, my friend Dean Wilson uh, says this all the time. He's one of the people who got insight going. He says drug users want to be good neighbors, like we want to be empowered and enabled to be good neighbors. But the idea of the drug user and the idea of the cop in popular culture are so strong that people are way more likely to know their, um, you know, the cop on TV and the drug user on TV than us and in either of those people in re, in real life, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. As we wrap it up here, I want to talk about your podcast, of course, Crackdown Podcast. You've talked about how some forces want to shut you down. They want to shut down Crackdown Podcast, and it's funding. Can you speak to this? What's happening? Like, Can you explain sort of some areas of where you get funding? I know, listeners, uh, you have a Patreon as well, but outside of that, you do have some grants and the resistance you've recently faced.
0: Yeah, uh, we get funded from academic sources. So on each episode or most episodes, you'll hear from uh, researchers and academics about um, the kinds of things they're studying and what those studies are showing. Mm-hmm. So we might talk about methadone or something, and then we'll look at the research on methadone. And there is certain amounts of money available through um, you know, academic funding bodies to talk about that kind of work. And so that's as part of the principle of the show, there's two things. We want to show that we're not just alone in our opinions on this, that Mm -hmm. that, the people have studied stuff and there's a lot of agreement with what we're saying, but we also don't want to take money away from any possible frontline service. Right. Right. So, um, You know, I don't know if I'm in competition with somebody who wants to do a paper on um, 18th century Italian literature or something like that, but I'd feel better if I beat them out than uh, accidentally beat out some uh, frontline service that might be starting up. So, yeah, we do we do kind of confine ourselves to that kind of funding Mm -hmm. Um, and. And that's, uh, that's something that's also relatively secure, you know, that the, the, uh, academic funding does not hinge on outcomes. Like you are funded mm-hmm. to go study something or talk about something, but they don't insist, oh, your finding must be X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And so if there's a group of people who don't like what the podcast is saying, they're not really well positioned to say, well, we don't like their conclusion." You know, I mean, I suppose they could complain to somebody like, oh, we used the wrong sample size when we talked about something, but we don't get that sort of thing. We get people who are politically objecting to what we're saying. They kind of get um, bent out of shape about it. They try to figure out how how can we do we write to Trudeau? Who do we t- I mean, the federal <laughs> government doesn't fund us, but it's like who do who do we write to? Who's in charge here? And um and they have not succeeded so far. In fact, when I told listeners about this, we got a big bump in our uh, monthly Patreon. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's uh, you, if 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 nobody is uh, if nobody's mad at you, you're probably not punching through. So I, I'm I'm not surprised, you know.
1: I guess I'm just curious. So you're talking about getting funding from these academic sources. So I guess it's sort of public money. It's not directly government grants, but who is the group? Or what are the groups that are popping up that are threatening you and what have they been doing specifically? Well, um, I I talked
0: to my team about this, like how we're going to speak about this. Um, And I just uh, every time we talk about somebody on the show, we want to give them the right to reply. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to give them airtime on the show so they can say their point of view. And I didn't want to do that, and I still don't want to do that for these people. Um, I don't want to give them. I don't want to spend my labor editing tape of them telling me to shut up. So, uh, but also, I believe if I say their names, then I have to give them the right to reply. So, (laughs) for now, I'm not. Um, And and they're sort of the kinds of more conservative leaning. People in the city may associated with development or, uh, you know, the mainstream sort of medical or pharmaceutical types. There have been a few categories of people that didn't like us. And um, they've, you know, varyingly tried to um, say, we're going to we're going to defund you or we're going to shut you down or whatever. And, uh, it, you know, I don't I don't know how serious they ended up being. Um, but we're still going
1: and listen I can appreciate the uh, the uh the quagmire you find yourself in in terms of you don't want to give people a platform but also in in fairness, you don't want to call them out unless you give them the opportunity to reply and that's totally fair and i I, I respect that position. I just think it's important to call this out I mean there are interests beyond what seemingly seem, seem to be. Facebook groups or quote unquote community groups that have tentacles into much larger interests that form public opinion and public discourse in the city. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not pushing you to name anyone. I'm, I'm just saying, like, it's important for consumers of media to understand that, hey, this little quote unquote community group that's coming out and talking about, uh, you know, Strathcona Park or whatever. Well, there's a lot of money and a lot of, uh, ulterior motives behind them.
0: You know what I mean? I do think that's important for, for listeners um, or consumers of any media is when you get these stories about, um, oh, how bad Vancouver is, isn't terrible. um, And just seems like Joe average citizen here Mm -hmm. or this little uh, group of concerned residents. And there's no journalism done to find out what are their political affiliations. You know, are they tied to political parties? Are they tied to developers? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they are these just average regular people, or are these people who have a lot more power in the city? That to me is incomplete journalism, um, and uh, maybe just um, slanted. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not helpful uh, to. To people who are consuming that journalism. And it also, like as I was saying earlier in the show, it just, it just pours gasoline on these regular cycles of scapegoating that this city goes through these, yeah. these moments of it. So yeah, I, I, I do wish for better journalism on this. Unfortunately, we're a really small operation. So we can't cover everything in fact what i've realized about crackdown is we can kind of do one thing at a time mm-hmm. like we can make a show about something or we can be fighting with people who want to defund us or we can be uh i don't know like pre- preparing for our next season but we can't do all any of those things at the same time yeah so no, I uh, even from that. just a personal perspective like i just don't i don't have time you know <laughs>
1: No, absolutely. And and I and I'm not saying it's you know up to you or, or anything yeah. like that. It's it's more of a general call I think for people to be if if there is that gap in journalism, for people to be critical of people that come out and speak in the media. I mean, when you have even pundits, right? And I've been very vocal about this in terms of being a pundit uh, doesn't really pay. And so the people that are investing time and in, and and going on TV or on the radio uh generally probably have a a motive, but they're not very open or or frank about that, or they're not explaining, you know, where the money's coming from to start these campaigns that they're doing. And so it's more of a general call, I think, to the public Mm -hmm. to be a little more discerning when they see news stories from all sorts of outlets. And I and I say, you know, take me as number one example. You know, feel free to look in or ask questions. But it's important to do that because we are starting to see these, I mean, you can call them astroturf groups. You can call yeah. them community groups. You can even call them independent media in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of examples of people creating content, and it looks just like oh, some indie media outlet. And then when you kind of peel back the layers, you go, oh, there's some interesting, <laughs> you know, connections with with big money or, or big or bigger interests. So that's that's all I really want to kind of end that on. And and uh, I do want to say that I really. I really do admire your work. The, the technical production of the podcast itself, incredible. The emotional stories that you're telling weaved within the realities of, of the city, it's, it's very engaging. It's one of my favorite local podcasts. It's meant a lot that you would give your time to me to, to be able to sit down and talk about a lot of these basic issues in a very basic way because I think that's where it starts. So, Garth, as we wrap up the podcast here, what is your call to action?
0: You know, um I I I love this part of the interview. This is where we we sort of end with a note of hope and optimism well, we and Here's what you can do. <laughs> no, I, well, good, because I don't know if I can. Um I I I go through moments where I know I know what it is. Um But I think for people who are, who are listening to you and you have a great, you have a great audience and I love how you do your shows. Like I will listen to people who I disagree with. I'll be ready to turn on your show and hate listen to somebody who you have on. (laughs) And then I'll like learn some interesting stuff and I'll be like, Oh, wow. You know? Um, So like, I appreciate that. And I I hope, I hope people uh, have the same opportunity here today, but I, I think that's maybe a really, a really important point. You've, you've taken us through a conversation about the sort of media culture landscape of a lot of things in the last hour. Right. And I think that that's something that people can really do, especially podcast listeners is start to decode and improve the media literacy of people around you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have sort of different calls to action for different groups of listeners and audiences, but I think for, for your listeners, Mo, like there's a role for all of us in helping improve the net media literacy of our city and i when i come on the podcast my podcast everybody knows what side i'm on like i don't try to hide that i show exactly who i'm with where mm-hmm. i'm standing what i'm against i don't pretend to be objective and paint you a picture as if i'm not involved i'm absolutely 100 involved i'm a drug user i'm a methadone i want my friends to live i don't trust the cops i don't like the government i don't think they've done enough like, I'll just tell you straight out, you know, mm-hmm. and I wish more people would do that. And to the extent that people can listen in to a lot of the commentary that comes from uh, pundits, that comes from community groups, that comes from mainstream politicians, and they'll try to act nice or they'll try to say, oh, we're, we're for these people. We want to help these people or whatever. But then, but then you see the sort of uh, the nasty edge of that sort of thing. F- follow your gut. A lot of those people really aren't on our side. A lot of those people are participating in a really ruthless class war in Vancouver. And this is the Canadian angle of it. We have some of the most bitter, mean spirited features of the United States. We just drizzle maple syrup all over it so it doesn't taste so bitter. And if you can, if we can all see this more clearly, I'm not saying what to think or what side to be on. I mean, Fuck be on my side for sure, but but like just look at this more clear-eyed and we'll all have a better world to live in.
1: I love that. And that's a great note to end on. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs>
0: thanks so much for having me. And like uh stay safe and keep six, everybody.
1: Garth, no, seriously, thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. I hope we can do it again. I did learn a lot and, and I continue to learn a lot from you and, and your work. Uh, so kudos to your team. You, and again, you were very kind. You, you dumbed things down for me to, to understand. And I think these are important conversations. So keep up the good work. And again, thank you very much.
0: No way. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And thanks for uh, doing what you do. Absolutely. Thanks, man.
1: Cheers. People, wowza, what a show. You wanted him on the podcast. <laughs> I delivered. You talk about people I'm truly in awe of in this city as broadcasters. And our guest today is right up there. He is, of course, the host and the executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, where drug users cover the war on drugs as war correspondents. He is Garth Mullins, and I am Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Hey folks, I'm Moamir, this is CKNW, and this is your Band Color Moment. Do you know how communities end homelessness? they house the homeless. Now, I know that's an oversimplification, but you know what you don't do if you want to end homelessness? You don't throw 42 people out on the street overnight. But that's exactly what Penticton City Council wants when it voted to close down an emergency homeless shelter at the end of this month, despite the fact that BC Housing wants to keep the shelter open while a proposed supportive housing complex is built to house vulnerable folks in Penticton afterwards. Penticton's Penticton Mayor John Vasilaki claims it's all about accountability. But will he be accountable for the inevitable homeless encampment in Penticton, just like Strathcona Park in Vancouver and Beacon Hill Park in Victoria for those folks who have nowhere else to go? Knowing the challenges of transitioning a homeless population out of a tent city and into supportive housing is Mayor Vasilaki being accountable when he will no longer cooperate with BC Housing or even meet with BC Housing Minister and Attorney General David Eby? Is this accountability when Mayor Vasilaki knows that housing provides the secure foundation for the types of wraparound services for addictions and mental health that will ultimately reduce his city's long-term costs of emergency care and policing? Is threatening to reject the development permit of the permanent supportive housing complex being accountable to your city's growing homelessness problem? Of course not, but it demonstrates that Mayor Vasilaki and Penticton City Council don't actually care about being accountable.
0: This has been your Van Color Moment with Mo Amir on 980 CKNW.